continuing our theme on finding your way, in which we're conducting a brief but systematic overview of the Bible. And over the past few weeks, we've managed to cover Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, and really the foundation of the Bible itself. And for our consideration this evening, we're going to jump forward about 1,500 years so that we can consider the life of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're familiar with any part of the Bible, chances are that it's not only the New Testament, but it's also a section pertaining to the life of Jesus Christ. In fact, even if you've never read any part of the Bible, you've probably still heard phrases like, do unto others as you would have them do to you, the so-called golden rule, which is actually taken from Jesus's teachings. This section of the Bible that records the life of Jesus is known collectively as the gospel. It's defined as those things which concern the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. But if we were to quickly scan through the first few books of the New Testament, we see that there's not just one record of Jesus's life, there's actually four. There's the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. And upon first glance, this might seem repetitive, redundant, or even unnecessary. But the Bible's inspired. It's God-breathed. As scriptures like 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 say, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God wants us to have each of these records. He doesn't waste words in the Bible, much less entire books. And so it's our goal this evening to try to examine the purpose behind the Gospels. Why four? Well, it's been said that a picture is worth a thousand words, but the converse of that is undoubtedly true as well. You see, each of these four Gospel writers paints for us a picture of Jesus Christ. But just as the illustration on the screen demonstrates, an examination that's based on just one viewpoint could cause us to come away with an incorrect interpretation of what's really there. Whether it's a car or a phone or a new sweater, we would never buy something based off just one picture. And so too with the Gospels. It's not until each perspective is carefully examined that we get a full understanding of what we're actually looking at. Although each of the four Gospels all record the life of Christ, they differ quite significantly. From the stories that the authors through inspiration chose to include or omit, the words that are used, the phrases that are repeated, and the events that are emphasized, each Gospel is written in such a way that there's significance in every part of it. In our brief consideration this evening, we'll introduce the authors that God has selected to pen his inspired word. We'll examine some of the major themes that are incorporated through the Gospels. And ultimately, we'll see how each Gospel portrays a different aspect of Jesus Christ. Well, the first Gospel is the Gospel of Matthew. The first question we could ask is, who's Matthew? If we read from Matthew 9 and verse 9, it says, And Jesus passed forth from thence, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And so we can see from this passage that Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. But what did Matthew do before he was a disciple? Places like Matthew 10 and verse 3 say that Matthew was a publican. He was a tax collector. Now, we might not be too fond of taxes today, but taxes in the time of the New Testament were something much worse. Because the tax collectors in the time of Jesus, they would collect the tax that they'd have to and pay that to Rome. 
but they would also collect their own personal tax and make personal gain off of taxing people extra money. And so Matthew would have been employed by Rome, and so he would have been hated because of the personal gain that he was making off people's money. But after meeting Jesus and seeing Jesus' mercy, he changed his allegiance from being employed by the Caesar of Rome to being an, a servant of Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. This theme of kingship actually shows up in the very first verse of Matthew's gospel. It says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Well, who was King David? David was a king back in the Old Testament time, nearly 1,000 years earlier. And so Jesus can't be the direct son of David because that was 1,000 years earlier. But we talked about this briefly in a previous Bible Basics webinar where we talked about the promises made to David. And if we were to read 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12, this is where God promises to David. He says, When thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Here, David is promised by God a greater king, one that's going to be from his lineage, and he will establish that kingdom. It's talking about Jesus Christ. And as a direct descendant of David, Jesus had a right to the throne, and that's what Matthew picks up. Matthew portrays Jesus as the perfect king. If we were to look briefly through some of the themes in Matthew, we have this idea of fulfillment, Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, 60 different times in Matthew, it's referenced that Jesus fulfilled an Old Testament passage, just one of them being here in 2 Samuel 7, where it talks about him being a king of the line of David. Seven different times in the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded that Jesus is the son of David, David the king, one of the most prominent kings in the Old Testament. And in uh, Matthew, it also makes reference 32 times to the kingdom of heaven. And so in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is portrayed as the perfect king, one who fulfilled the promises to David and who will be a future ruler in the kingdom on earth. Well, that's the Gospel of Matthew. What about the Gospel of Mark? We might not be too familiar with Mark because most of the time when we're referring to this Bible character, he's referred to as John Mark. If we were to read from Acts 15, we get an introduction into who this man was. It says, And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. The Apostle Paul, who's just uh, shortly after the time of Christ, is responsible for delivering the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. Whereas Jesus was primarily responsible for the gospel to the Jews, Paul brought it to the Gentiles. And Paul doesn't want to take John Mark with them because he says that he left them. He didn't want to do the work that they had to do. He wasn't a good servant. But it says later in 2 Timothy 4, one of the letters written by Paul towards the end of his life, it says quite the opposite. It says, take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry, for the serving. You see, after this time, Mark or John Mark has become a much better servant. And it's at this point that he is considered for the gospel of Mark. The same theme that's brought up here is this idea of, of serving. It says in Mark 10 and verse 45, for the son of man, talking about Jesus, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom 
for many. And this idea of Jesus being portrayed as this perfect servant is brought up in the themes in Mark's gospel. We have this idea of humility. In fact, there's actually no genealogy in Mark because it's referring to Christ as a servant, one who doesn't have a background because there's supposed to be no pride there. When Jesus heals people in Mark, he asks them not to spread the news that he'd heal people, not to publish them, because he doesn't want the glory. He doesn't want the fame. He wants to give God the glory. One of the major themes in Mark is this idea of immediate action. This idea of a good mindset of a servant who's always ready and willing to, to serve. 40 different times it talks about this immediate or straightaway serving. And so it's a major theme talking about the service in Mark's gospel. And the final theme that we have tonight is this idea of loyal sacrifice. More than in any other gospel, Jesus talks about his sacrifice, his crucifixion in Mark's gospel the most. And so by Mark, we have this portrayal of Jesus as the perfect servant, someone who has an immediate desire to serve God to the fullest, even to the laying down of his life but it's without pride because he wants to give the glory to God, not himself. Well, that's Mark's gospel. What about Luke's gospel? Who was Luke? Luke was another disciple, but it says in Colossians 4, it says, Luke, the beloved physician. You see, Luke was a doctor. We can sort of think of a physician or a doctor as the New Testament equivalent to what a priest would do. Because in the Old Testament times, Places like Leviticus 13 tell us that when people had diseases, specifically here leprosy, which was a skin condition, they were to be brought before, it says they should bring them before Aaron the priest or unto one of the sons the priests. And so people with diseases were brought to the priests. They were the Old Testament doctors. Well, it says in Mark 2 that Jesus came. He says that they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus certainly did heal those who were physically sick. There's lots of occurrences of that. But he says that his main goal is to heal the sinners, to bring the sinners back to God. It's talking about a spiritual healing. And in doing so, in bringing those sinners to God, it says in Luke 19 that this day is salvation come to this house. For the Son of Man, Jesus, is come to seek and save that which was lost. He's come to seek those sinners and bring them salvation. And so we see in Luke this portrayal of Jesus as the perfect physician or the perfect priest. You know, priests had to have a constant um, communication with God. There had to be constant prayer. And in Luke's gospel, we have more occurrences of Jesus's prayers being made than in any other gospel. We have this idea of a doctor or a priest being a compassionate healer. And Jesus compassionately healed those who were physically sick, but also those who were spiritually outcast in bringing them closer to God. And as we said from Luke 19, that in doing so, he was able to offer them salvation. Luke's gospel records this idea of salvation or savior or saving more than any other gospel. And so Luke portrays Jesus as the perfect priest. He was one who was a compassionate and prayerful healer of the sick which prefigured the salvation of sinners. And so that brings us to our last gospel, which is the gospel of John. Well, what do we know about John from the gospel record? It says in Luke 9 of John, 
says, and John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him because he followeth not with us. John was forbidding the believers who weren't as close to Christ, even though they were casting out or healing diseases in uh, Jesus' name. Well, it says later in verse 54 of Luke 9, And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, when they saw that people weren't receiving Christ, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You see, when these people didn't receive Christ, John wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. He was impulsive and judgmental, which is quite a contrast to what it says about Jesus, because the theme of this gospel is judgment. It says in John 5 and verse 22, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, unto Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 30, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. And so John portrays Jesus as this perfect judge. And these themes that are introduced here are consistent with that. In John, there's this theme of the Jewish rulers, the members of the Sanhedrin, who were basically the judges of the Jewish courts. 71 times it mentions these Jewish rulers who were a contrast to the faithful judgments of Jesus because they were corrupt. These Jewish rulers were corrupt in their judgments. Another theme in John is this idea of discerning thoughts, that Jesus was able to know the thoughts of others And in doing so, he was able to judge people's motives. He was able to make perfect judgments, judgments that were according to the will of God. And the final aspect here is the idea of love. More than in any other gospel, John talks of love, allowing a judge to make merciful judgments, judgments with love. And so John portrays Jesus as the perfect judge, one who is loving, one who knows our thoughts and is able to make perfect judgments or divine judgments based off godly principles. And so in each of these gospels, although they're different in terms of the events that they include, although they speak to different audiences, one of the major things that they do is they portray Jesus in different lights, as a king, as a servant, as a priest, and as a judge. And I'd encourage you to continue to look through these themes as you read your Bible, because there's so much more depth to to these gospels than what we've had time to cover tonight but we've established the foundation here that there's four different writers who through inspiration penned different but complementary records of Jesus's ministry, portraying him in different lights as the perfect king, servant, priest, and judge. Four characteristics of Jesus all united in one man, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that brings us to our second section and we'll hand it over to Ron now so that he can talk to us about the oneness of God now. Well, good evening, everybody. It's nice to be back with you, and it's nice that you've come back to be with us. And uh, we hope that uh, the material that uh, John has presented fascinating we hope that it's been very helpful what we've been doing in this second session over the last two weeks is having uh, a look at the god of the bible considering different aspects of uh, the god of the bible 
In the first week, we, we considered the all-powerfulness of God. And uh, we, we looked at how God was omnipotent and all-present. Uh, last week, we looked at the character of God, and we, we saw that God's character was displayed in two different ways. He was uh, a God of justice, but he was also a God who was a savior. And tonight, what we want to do, we want to consider God from a, a different point of view. We want to look at the oneness of God. We want to examine God, the God of the Bible, how he is presented in the Bible, uh, and, and particularly the emphasis to his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we've, we haven't got very long to do this, so we're going to try and be as brief as possible uh, and, and as concise as possible. You see, what, what we find today uh, is that people look at the uh, scriptures and they make God out to be um, they make God out to be um, a triune God, a God that is, is described as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, and obviously, it, this topic is an important one because Jesus says in John 17, it, it is life eternal that we might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And so it's essential that we have a, a clear understanding of who God is and how he is displayed before us in the, in the word of God. And, and when we consider what scripture says about God, it becomes very evident that throughout scripture, Jesus, uh, God is described as one God. In the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, uh, Moses wrote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, is one Lord. And that theme of the oneness of God, the monotheistic God of the Bible, uh, continues in the New Testament because the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, of whom, by whom are all things and we by him. And again, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, the record tells us there is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And so it doesn't matter where we look in, in Scripture, God is described as, as one God. And in fact, in the prophet Isaiah, he says, there are no gods besides me. The Jews particularly who are the, the source of the Hebrew scriptures, they're the ones that uh, preserve the Hebrew scriptures through various means. They are fiercely monotheistic. And uh, even the, the uh, Islamic people who came also from Abraham, as did the Jews, they too believe in one God. Now, before we look at this in a little bit more detail, Let's just have a look at the attributes of God. How is God portrayed in the Bible? And we're not going to look at these verses uh, in particular, 
but if you've got a pen and, and you want to write them down, you can read them for yourself. But God is described as the creator and sustainer of all things. Everything exists because of God. In fact, that passage in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 28, say, says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. We exist today and the rest of creation exists because God sustains his creation. He tells us that he lives in a, in a definite location uh, in heaven. Uh, and whilst no, nobody's ever been where God, uh, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, where God lives, Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, which art in heaven. And so the Bible definition is of where God lives is in heaven. Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, wrote uh, the, uh, the King Solomon. God is a spirit being. Uh, and this spirit power radiates from him so that he is everywhere. And we recommend that you, you read Psalm 139 and verse 7. The psalmist says there, where shall I go from thy presence? Whither shall I flee? If I go down into the belly of the earth, you are there. If I go into the depths of the sea, you are there. God is everywhere, and that is possible because he is a spirit being. He is not made of flesh and blood uh, as you and I are. And it's by God's spirit that all things were created. Job says in Job chapter 26, by the spirit of God, uh, the creation took place. So when we come across the term Holy Spirit, what do we understand by that phrase? Well, it's very simple. It's not talking about um, an individual who is part of the, uh, the Godhead. Uh, the word holy simply means set apart. And the Spirit of God, when it is described as the Holy Spirit, it refers to God's work in connection with salvation. It's the power of God which is set apart in order to bring salvation. And so Jesus was born by Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. So the Holy Spirit is the power of God, the power of the highest. The Bible was written by Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter says that. Um, that should be Second Peter, um, chapter 1 and verse 21. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. And finally on this chart, miracles. Miracles were performed by Holy Spirit. And so we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4 that the apostles, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We use the term spirit rather than ghost because 
the idea of ghosts is foreign to Bible teaching. And uh, we think it's a better translation to say spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we've got another verse there, chapter 1 of Acts and verse 4 and 5, which supports the idea of miracles being performed by Holy Spirit. Now, what we find when we go through Scripture, and you'll remember back in an earlier session, in session 15, we, we dealt with I and the Father are one. And we made the point that it is very easy to take verses out of context. And therefore, it's important that when we're dealing with biblical terms and biblical ideas, that we know fully what the context is revealing to us. And so we, we've got some conflicting ideas in Scripture. Jesus is described in the uh, prophet Isaiah as the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And of course, people assume that that is a support of the idea that Jesus is part of the, the Godhead. We, we looked at John 10 in session 15. I and my Father are one. And we saw clearly that Jesus wasn't claiming equality there. But these are verses which create a little bit of a, of a problem on the face value. Jesus himself said, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And the writer to the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews says of Jesus, thy throne, O God, is forever. Now, on the other side of the coin, we have it very clearly stated that the Lord Jesus Christ never claimed equality with his Father. Look at these four verses, and there are, there are many more in Scripture. He says, I can of mine own self do nothing. And so Jesus said that he, he was unable to do anything of himself. John 17, uh, John 7 and verse 16, he says, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. And so Jesus was communicating his teaching, which came from God not from himself. He says, this commandment have I received of my father in John 10 and verse 18. In other words, Jesus is presenting to us that he was working on behalf of the father. And John 14 and verse 28 tells us, my father is greater than I. And that in itself is, is a clear teaching that Jesus never claimed equality with God. He acknowledged that everything he did was from God. The things which he taught came from God and that his father was greater than he was. So how do we understand this oneness of God and the relationship of uh, Jesus Christ? Well, I want us to look at an Old Testament um, example. And what we have in it, we have two comments in the New Testament, which tell us that no man hath seen God at any time. That's in the Gospel of John. And the Apostle Paul repeats that. God whom no man hath seen, nor can see. So those are two very clear statements that nobody 
has ever seen God. And yet, when we go to the book of Exodus, chapter 24 and verse 10, Moses was called by God to go up into Mount Sinai, bring with him Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel. And when they got part way up the mountain, we read there that they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. Now, does this mean that the Bible contradicts itself? Or is there a logical solution to this particular problem? Nobody has seen God, and yet Exodus chapter 24 tells us very clearly that they saw the God of Israel. Now, you, you may recall when we did our session 15, that we, we noted that that word God, which occurs 2,470 times, was the word Elohim. And it means mighty ones. And we saw at that time that it can be, it can be translated uh, in, in a variety of ways. It can refer to God himself. It can refer to angels. It can refer to the judges of Israel. And it also is used in scripture to describe the heathen gods of the nations. So how do we resolve this, what apparent contradiction? Well, one of the things that we encourage in this webinar series is to allow the scriptures to explain themselves. And if you, if you have a marginal reference Bible, which has little references to other parts of the Bible, you may find in Exodus 24 that there's a reference to Acts chapter 7. And the disciple Stephen says on this occasion, this is talking about Moses. This is he that was in, in the, or talking about God. This is he that was in the ecclesia, in the church in the wilderness, with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Now, in actual fact, Stephen is describing the events of Exodus, Exodus chapter 24. Because if you look at the context of Exodus chapter 24 and go a little further down the chapter, you will find that Moses was asked to separate himself from Aaron and the 70 elders and, and go a little further up into the mountain. And when he came into the presence of God, into the presence of the angel, he received the Ten Commandments, which the disciple Stephen describes as the lively oracles. And so what we have is a commentary in the New Testament of what happened actually in Exodus chapter 24. They didn't see the creator of the universe, the giver of all life. They saw his representative. They saw his angel. And, and, and this angel is described for us in chapter 23 of Exodus and verse 20. The angel was God's representative. God said, Behold, I send an angel before thee, 
to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. And as you progress through your Bible reading, you'll find out that this angel was actually called Michael. Not only was he God's representative, but he manifested God's name. And you notice at the top of the slide, we've got God manifestation. And that word manifestation simply means God revealed. How is God revealed to us in scripture? Well, in this case, he was revealed to Israel through an angel, his representative. And we're also told in Exodus chapter 23 in verse 21, that this angel manifested or revealed or declared God's name. He said, beware of him, obey his voice, provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. And when you read that verse, you can see that this angel had a very substantial amount of authority. He was given the ability to forgive sins or not forgive them because it says God's name was in him now when you think about that that is exactly the way that the Lord Jesus Christ is presented to us in scripture in the reference in 1st Timothy chapter 3 it says that God was manifest in the flesh he was revealed in the flesh it didn't mean that god came down in, in the flesh god came down in the form of a representative he sent a representative the lord jesus christ he was raised up of the seed of david and he became god's representative john chapter 17 says that he declared his father's name he manifested God's name. And what that really means, if we consider what we talked about last week, the, the characteristics, the character of God was displayed by Jesus. Men saw what God was like when they looked at the Lord Jesus Christ. And John 1 verse 14 says, the word was made flesh, dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when they saw Jesus, they became aware of what God was like. And you remember the verse which we considered last week, which describes the character of God. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And those are those two sides to God's character, grace and truth, or goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and so on. Jesus Christ was God's representative in the same sense that the angel was his representative. The interesting thing about the oneness of God is that that unity that is shared by Jesus and, and the God of heaven that same purpose same quality of character 
it's extended to people who are prepared to do, devote their life to the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father. You see, before Jesus was crucified, he prayed for his disciples and he prayed for those that would believe on Jesus through the word which the disciples taught. Look what he says. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. That glory was grace and truth. And he says, I have given it to them that they too, those that believe, may be one even as we are one. And so the unity that God enjoys with his son has been extended to you and I. But it's on the basis that we believe God's word and we understand and come to appreciate who and what the God of the Bible is. So we'll conclude that for this evening and, and hope that that's been helpful. There is far more to be said about this topic, but there are time limits us. Next week, God willing, the first section on finding your way is going to be dealing with John the Baptist, the man who spoke of the coming of Jesus Christ. Prepare the way of the Lord. And in our key Bible themes, we're going to be considering the source of evil. Why do bad things happen? And as a reminder, there are the various ways in which uh, you can contact us, Facebook, Instagram, our website. And uh, we recommend that you sometimes take the trouble to go back over some of the videos that have been, pre -rec been recorded and uh, put on the website and uh, just refresh your mind on some of the things that have been said. Thank you for joining us. And we pray now that as we conclude this evening, God will give us his blessing.